Father, in the depth of every genuinely converted soul is that desire that we just sang. We understand that we know a lot, but to, our knowledge of Thee is partial and limited. It's not that we want to know more Bible facts. It's not that we want to be able to argue about a theological ditty. What we want is to peer into the great heart of God and to find there that which would prompt us to be more like you. It is not just head knowledge we're after, Father. That puffs up. What we want is that which will change us into the image of Jesus Christ. And to know you is eternal life itself. And so, Father, by, the, by your grace and by the power of the indwelling Spirit, grant it to be so. That we will know you more. That we will trust you better. That we will walk away from this hour spent together. Changed people. Might there be something that's new and fresh about our souls after this hour spent than before when we came in? Oh God, we don't want to waste our time going through a religious performance. What we want is to know you more. And I pray that you will hide the preacher behind this sacred desk. So that what people will see is not him and his sin. But what they will see is Christ in all of his beauty. In Christ in all of his saving beauty, oh God. Might we walk away with a better grasp of how beautiful is our Savior. Our Father, we continue to pray for our nation. She is a nation that quivers. There are things that make her palms sweat now that didn't used to make them sweat. There is sleeplessness that used to not be existent. Because we have been attacked by something that we can't quantify and understand. And we pray, O oh God, that righteousness will reign. If it's not this nation, might it reign someplace else. But might righteousness rule. I do pray for our brother in the Oval Office. And that you would guard him. And give him good counsel. Father, for the brother or sister who's walked in here this morning and is overtaken by a concern that breaks their hearts, whether it's physical or marital or parental or professional, oh God, might something be said here today that will give them a, a fresh dose of hope from heaven. Now, Father, accept our gifts. In a lot of ways, Father, compared to what's left over in the checking account, they're small gifts. But we give them because we love you. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to Judges chapter 12. And let's uh, kind of, or at least attempt to wind up our look at Jephthah and uh, the judge that comes after Jephthah is a guy by the name of Samson. We'll spend several weeks with Samson. 
in the month of November. <clears throat> Follow now as I read from Judges chapter 12 at verse 1. Judges 12, 1. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over toward Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon, and when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manessites. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he would say, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the good news is, ladies and gentlemen, that the word of our God, it endures forever. When I uh, mention <clears throat> wisdom, that is wisdom as seen in the Bible, normally most people's minds immediately race to a guy by the name of Solomon. Because, as you know, Solomon was... Um, the man described as having more wisdom than any man ever lived before him, or any man ever since. Uh, do you remember the story, the thing that illustrated his wisdom, or at least the thing that illustrated his wisdom the best, at least in my opinion, is that story about the, the, uh, the one baby and the two mothers? That is, the two mothers that claimed that that one baby was theirs. Remember that story? And you remember how Solomon figured out who was the real mother? He handed the baby to one of his servants and gave him a knife and said, I, the only way I can possibly settle this between these two women is, is why don't you take that baby, cut it in half, give half to one mother and half to the other. And of course, the real mother raced forward and said, no, 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 don't do that. Let her have it. And of course, Solomon knew that was the real mother. And so he took the other one and cast her out and gave the baby to its rightful mother. Great display. Great display of wisdom, don't you think? But uh, I want to suggest to you that the story that I've just read to you, compared to that story, is far better. <laughs> uh, it's, got a, it's far more fun in what uh, Jephthah pulled off here, because uh, Jephthah was able to figure out who the liars were. Boy, that's hard. <laughs> Trying to figure out uh, who's lying to you and who's not. He was able... To unmask pretenders. Oh, wouldn't you like that ability? 
Jephthah was able to, um, to discover the, the true origin of a speaker, and he was able to do that via the pronunciation of a word. The situation is, is um, not completely unlike one that we would experience today. Uh, if you were to ask someone from Boston to pronounce parked car, you know, they say something like parked car. Uh, or if you were to ask somebody from Virginia to pronounce about or house, they say something weird like, about to house, or to ask anybody from the South to pronounce water. No, ladies and gentlemen, there is no R in that word. Or to ask anybody from the South to, 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 to pronounce any word with a long I. Like, um, nine. Or Christ. It is not nan and it's not Christ. Um, yesterday, I was uh, having lunch with my daughter and one of her friends, and one of uh, this young woman who's a friend of my daughter's uh, is from Lewiston, Tennessee, or something like that. And and um, I was sitting with a group of guys from our church, and um, I think it was Andy Harvey that said something profound, which is quite unusual in itself. But um, uh, uh, Andy said something, and this this little girl sitting next to me, she's 25 years old, she said, "Right." Alex, I said, right? <laughs> Do you mean right? But uh, she revealed who she was, where she's from, just via the pronunciation of a word with a long eye. Well, folks, Jephthah uh, uses that approach to identify his enemies. And as a result, 42,000 Ephraimites, and not all of them died at the ford. Some of them died in the battle, but we don't know how many. But 42,000 Ephraimites lose their lives because of their inability to pronounce the word Shibboleth. Now, did you notice when I, I, I read the text, did you notice that there was a difference? The difference lies in an H. Because... Of a s, as opposed to a sh. Men lost their lives. Because of a little tiny H sound, 42,000 people lost their lives. The, the difference in living and dying had to do with a with an H. By the way, that word shibboleth has worked its way into English dictionaries. Um, it, the word in English, it's a, it's a Hebrew word brought into the English, and it means uh, any kind of test that a group gives to outsiders to see whether they really belong. That's exactly what Jephthah did. A test is figure out how, whether you really belonged, and it, it hinged... On the ability to say Shibboleth. And they said, Sibboleth. 
versus shh was the difference between life and death. The point is, guys, I think, or one of the points is, that something which may appear to be very, very small in and of itself might just be something indicative of something really big. Something that may appear to be tiny on the surface of it just may be something huge in terms of what it represents. For instance, if I ask you to pray, P-R-A-Y, but what if I ask you to pray? P-R-E-Y. Oh, I could get you in jail over that E and versus that A. They're both vowels. Mark Twain used to say that the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and lightning bug. <laughs> Very small. Um, again... Something that may be small in and of itself has immense ramifications tied up with it. Gang, I know of no place where, where things that may appear to be minor distinctions have more ramifications as they do in the world of religion and in the world of orthodoxy. Oh, but Dr. Young, you Christians, you fight over such trivia. Well, in some instances, we deserve that, ladies and gentlemen. Sometimes we do fight over the color of carpet. God help us. I, I, ladies and gentlemen, in all honesty, I was in one of those one time where we asked the lady to go out and buy a, 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 a covering for the communion elements. Back in my uh, Presbyterian days, we asked, um, we asked a lady of the church, an elder's wife actually, to go buy a, a covering for the elements. You know, we don't cover them here, being the uncircumcised Philistines that we are. Um, and But back then, you know, you covered them. And you had to whip the cover off and fold it just right, you know, kind of like an American flag. Well, um, one Sunday morning, we showed up for um, communion. And there, to our astonished amazement, was a covering. But it was not white. It was off-white. Well, anybody knows that you don't cover communion elements with something other than white. Don't you? We fought over that, ladies and gentlemen. That poor woman was reduced to tears and had to take that nasty cloth back and get a white one. Well, yeah, we do sometimes fight over utter foolishness. But sometimes, ladies and gentlemen... 
what may appear to be something very small is the difference between heresy and orthodoxy. I've told this story before. I don't think I've told it from this pulpit, but I've told it from the Wednesday night pulpit. A story that comes from church history that amazes me in this regard. It occurred back in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea. You may have heard of the Nicene Creed that grew out of the Council of Nicaea in 325. Well, there were two elements in that, uh, that meeting. There were the followers of Arius, A-R-I-U-S, who was a guy um, who produced a cult called Arianism. And by the way, it's still alive today, and you see it in the Jehovah's Witness movement. Jehovah's Witnesses is nothing more than a 21st century version of Arianism of the 4th century, with a few changes here and there. But there was a guy by the name of Athanasius. This whole event began, uh, took on a title, in fact. It was called Athanasius Contramundum. You know what that means, don't you? <laughs> Athanasius against the world. Athanasius Contramundum. Because Athanasius wanted to use a word that described the person of Jesus Christ. He wanted to use the word Homoousius. H-O-M-O-O-U-S-I-O-U-S. The homo, you know, means same. Usius means essence. And Athanasius wanted to describe the person of Christ in its relationship with God the Father with the term homoousius, which means of same essence. But Arians, or Arius, didn't like that word. He wanted to substitute the word homoousius. The difference in a Greek term is the iota, which in English is an I. It's an iota, an iota, you know. The only difference in the two words was an iota. And, of course, you had H-O-M-O-I-O. So you had three vowels together. So in the Greek language, normally, when you found that many vowels together, and one of them was an iota, they took it and they wrote it under the, uh, the other letter. It was called an iota subscript. It was kind of like an O, which in the Greek is an omicron, an O with a comma underneath it. And ladies and gentlemen, one's understanding of the person of Christ hung, hinged, on an iota subscript. One little e under an omicron. Because the word homoousius meant of similar nature and essence to the Father. So Arius was saying, Jesus Christ is very much like the Father, but different. And not of the same. You know, he's not like God. And Athanasius insisted that Jesus was of the same essence. And our whole understanding of the deity of Christ, ladies and gentlemen, hung on this little comma underneath the Omicron. One little comma. That's all it was. And if you put the Omicron, I mean the iota in there, Changes everything. Changes everything. 
It's the difference between Christianity and the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's all right. Most people who know anything about the history of the Reformation, you know what the Reformation is. I mean, we're in Reformation season. Uh, it was in 1519 that Martin Luther nailed uh, 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg on October the 31st. Uh, for Christians, October the 31st is not Halloween. It's all Saints' Eve. It's the day that Martin Luther shook the world, ladies and gentlemen, and, and challenged the whole Roman aristocracy to a debate. But anyway, most historians of the Reformation would tell you that one of the greatest days, the most significant days in the history of the world was the day that the scholarly Philip Melanchthon, he was Martin Luther's sidekick, that this scholar Philip Melanchthon showed Martin Luther that the Greek word that had always been translated penance really meant repentance. That all of Christendom hung one day in the 16th century on Philip Melanchthon taking Martin Luther aside and saying, Martin Luther, let me tell you something. The word that we've been translating in there in the Roman church is penance doesn't mean repentance. It means repentance. But Jimmy, 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 Jimmy. Why would you get so hung up on the difference between penance and repentance? It only means the difference between life and death. Oh, oh, indeed, they sound a a whole lot alike, but are they? You see, ladies and gentlemen, penance is a change of clothes. It's, um, it's, uh, you know, I do penance. I take out this strange necklace and I run through a bunch of beads. That's penance. Repentance, on the other hand, is a new birth. It's the remaking of a man's insides. On those two little words is the difference between change and conversion. Just a It's just almost a difference in pronunciation. Penance. Repentance. They're two sets of very similar words, ladies and gentlemen. And they describe two entirely different worlds. Oh, but Dr. Young, is all that important? Well, it's important, ladies and gentlemen... if you'd like to spend eternity in heaven. Because one set of words means eternal life. The other set of words means eternal damnation. 
when on the surface of the thing, <laughs> they look so much alike. Penance. Repentance. Ladies and gentlemen, people can miss heaven ever so slightly. Do you know that? I didn't make that up, ladies and gentlemen. Do you know Jesus said that? Mark chapter 12, verse 34. Take a look. He says to the man who was the uh, great questioner of his, who came asking all the questions, he looked at him and he said, You're not far. You're not far from the kingdom. You ain't in it. But you're not far. Have you ever been in a line wanting to buy something and they ran out right before it was your turn to go to the window? Is there anything more infuriating? I know you got another one back there. Come on, come on. I used to get upset over missing a tram at Disney World. Had to wait on the next one. Guys, um, one can be close to the kingdom and miss it. One can do penance and miss it. But repent and gain it. Gang, did you know this? Maybe you've never heard of this, but I'm just giving you a history lesson of some sort this morning. One of the most famous sermons that were ever preached in all of sermonizing, in all of the history of preaching, was a sermon preached by George Whitfield. They've made it into a tract. They've made it into a pamphlet. They've made it into all kinds of little things. But... Um, George Whitfield preached a sermon um, 150 years ago, maybe, maybe 200 years ago. And the title of the sermon was The Almost Christian. You know what his text was? It was Acts chapter 26, verse 28, where Paul is, is uh, giving his testimony before Herod Agrippa. You know, Herod Agrippa was one of the descendants of Herod the Great. Herod the Great's the one that slaughtered all the babies when Jesus was born. Well, this is one of his sons, I guess, or nephews or whatever. Uh, but Herod Agrippa was on the throne, and, and Paul was being held, and, and uh, he was giving his, his defense in front of Herod Agrippa, and uh, a Roman governor. And in the midst of him giving his defense, Herod Agrippa stopped him and said, Stop, Paul, stop, Paul, stop, Paul. Almost, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian, says Agrippa. Almost thou persuadest me. And Paul said, Oh, Agrippa, I don't want to almost persuade you. I wish I could persuade you the whole way. There are people who are almost, almost Christians. They're not there, but they're close. I read a story uh, about a, a, a hundred, happened 150 years ago in Scotland about a preacher who would um, ride on horseback to his uh, fellow preacher's church to help him, to assist him in an annual communion. He would ride from his parish to another parish, and it took two days, on horseback, to assist this brother friend of his 
in an annual communion. And so on the way, he had to stop overnight in a wayside, roadside inn. And um, when he did, on the first time that he went over to visit his friend, he, um, a little 14-year-old girl skipped out of the house with sparkling eyes and rosy cheeks and full of life and vigor and came and took his horse to take care of his horse. And, and he immediately developed an interest in the little girl and began to share Christ with her. But didn't get very far, and she wasn't particularly interested. And so he said, how about this? Would you, for the next year, I want you to pray simply this. Would you pray, Lord, show me myself? You just pray that for a year. And when I come back next year, we'll talk. And so she promised to do so, and she did. So the next year, when he came back, uh, he was on his way to his friends again for the annual communion. He stopped at the same way, side in, and uh, the girl came out, but all of her vigor was gone. No sparkle in her eyes. You could tell with one look at her that she was a changed young woman. And so he began to talk to her, and she was so gripped and so overcome with her sin and, and her, her breaking of a relationship with God. And so he said... Talked to her some more, but she still wasn't yet to pray to receive Christ. And so he said, okay, for the next year, I want you to pray this. Oh, Lord, show me thyself. He came back the next year, and the sparkle had returned. The rosy cheeks were back because now. She was a new creature. The first prayer had shown her sin. The second one had shown her the Savior. But it's only... Listen, Lord, show me myself. Lord, show me thyself. They even rhyme. Very much alike. But one led to despair... The other led to new life. Guys, I want to say two things as we head towards a close. First of all, in the 21st century, in 21st century evangelicalism, there are two areas where people are almost converted, but are not. There are two things that I think cause so much confusion in the mind of religionists. That they think all is well, when in fact it is not. But they're very, very similar. It's the difference between faith and saving faith. All very similar, sounding. But do you know, ladies and gentlemen, how the New Testament addresses faith? The New Testament, in several places, uh, James chapter 2, verse 19, that says, You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and tremble. You believe? My friend, you may have nothing more than the belief of a devil. Do you know the passage when Jesus is dealing with demons and the demons cry out, We know who you are! You're the Holy Son of God. Jesus quieted him, didn't want him to talk. But those were another set of demons that knew him and saw him in all of his profundity, but remained 
unconverted. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a vast world of eternity that separates faith and saving faith. Some kind of generalized knowledge that there's a big bang up there, a big power, an overall arching ultimate authority. No, ladies and gentlemen, that's not saving faith. I believe in the man upstairs. Huh? What do you mean the man upstairs? I had a man say that to me in the workout room this week. I'm ready to die because I believe in the man upstairs. Well, do you believe in Jehovah? The God who revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I didn't say that. But in whom do you believe, ladies and gentlemen? Have you submitted to the God of this book? Because, ladies and gentlemen, they may sound alike. But the difference is vast. There's one other thing that I think is so confusing to 21st century evangelicalism. And that is the role of works. Do works earn my salvation? Or do they exhibit my salvation? Um, Are they... An expression, our works, an expression of my relationship to Christ? Or are they a route to a relationship with Christ? Do good works precede my salvation? Or do they flow out of my salvation? Are, is, are my works something in which I trust? Or are they something that I offer back to God in gratitude for what He's done for me? Do you understand that? Can you answer those questions? Because, ladies and gentlemen, they are the difference between someone who is close to the kingdom and someone who is inside. Oh, but they, they, they're very close sounding. Guys, let me close with this. The world in which we live loves Jesus as a model, as an example, and as a teacher. But when I respond to that Yes, 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 I believe all of that. That is all true. But he is so much more than that. That's when the battle begins. As long as we promote Jesus as a teacher, as a moral reformer, the world will will applaud Even Islam applauds Jesus as a prophet. But when we insist that he and he alone is the only savior of sinners, the clash between the two worlds is underway. Teacher, savior, is the difference that... Is it really that big? 
It's only the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Ladies and gentlemen, if you take Jesus as Savior, you get Him as teacher. You take Him as teacher, you get Him not at all. Sometimes things seem very small when in reality they are huge. Are you here today only close to the kingdom? Almost Ladies and gentlemen, do not stop until you are safely inside. And the way to come inside is to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. Our Father, I, I do pray that the distinctions that have been made here today have been made clearly and forthrightly and honestly and accurately and loyally. And I pray, Father, that as uh, some distinctions have been drawn, that you will use them to clarify in many minds, perhaps, the difference between being a Christian and an almost Christian. Uh, Father, might the difference between penance and repentance be known and understood. The difference between Christ as Savior and Christ as Teacher and Prophet. Father, might men, perhaps for the first time in their life, see clearly who it is that we love to sing about and praise and worship here each Sunday morning. Father, use what has been said, and it's by stammering tongue that it has been said, but use it, O oh God. Use it to draw people to yourself. For we ask it in Jesus' name.